Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Jonathan Cavalier. He is the director of Gardens and Grounds at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, DC. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. And as you might know, Jonathan, Dumbarton Oaks is one of my favorite gardens in the entire world, and not just the DC area, and for good reason. So we're going to talk about all things Dumbarton Oaks, the history, what's going on today, maybe some of the future of the garden. But first, we want to talk about you and your background a little bit, Jonathan, and how you came to Dumbarton Oaks. But we have to ask our question of, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? <laughs> I was. Uh, and I, I, I wasn't born at Dumbarton Oaks. Uh, and I wasn't conceived at Dumbarton Oaks. But my parents <laughs> did spend a lot of time here. And they lived right across the street. So, oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I um, I grew up loving gardening. Uh, my my dad was an avid gardener, uh, although he, he mostly only grew azaleas. Um, so I don't, I don't grow a lot of azaleas, but, uh, I, I spent my childhood with a love of gardening. And, um, then I had a cathartic experience in Israel in between, uh, high school and college working on a kibbutz in a, in the largest date orchard in Israel on kibbutz Tiretzvi. And that really, um, crystallized things for me. And I, I, I realized I, I wanted to do this as a career. So I, um, had already, decided to go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I had planned to study physics and um, I transferred into the agriculture school in my freshman year and and the rest is history. Wow. And that experience growing fruit trees in Israel, is any of that applicable to the DC area, I wonder, with the different climates? Yes. Um, well, I mean, just the, the, the love of cultivating um, plants is, is what got me started. Um, I, I think... Uh, Definitely um, moving around and, and trying different things and private landscape design and, and public exploring the world of public gardens. Um, I got to spend some time in Madagascar in 2006 working uh, over there doing landscape design and, and some rehabilitation of mining sites. And that's really where the experience in Israel uh, helped me um, gain a, a deeper appreciation and love for tropical plants and uh growing fruit trees and, and other um, tropical plants. Uh, that experience led me to the Smithsonian to uh, work with the tropical plant collection uh, for Smithsonian Gardens. And, and so, uh, yeah, I would say, you know, the, the work with tropical plants and, and starting in Israel really um, led me down a path. But um, I, I love uh, learning about new aspects of horticulture that I'm not familiar with. And there are so many that um, it, it really has been a great um journey to, you know, explore, explore a lifelong passion for learning. And the Smithsonian was a great opportunity to do that as well, I'm sure. Yes. And the Smithsonian was really my, my first foray into the world of public gardening. And um, I think, you know, I was not exposed to public gardens as a, as a possibility in a, in a career uh, development when I was in college and, and um, my advisors, there just wasn't, there didn't seem to be a strong awareness, at least it was at the University of Wisconsin, 
uh, for careers in public gardening. And so I was really um, coming to the Smithsonian, it really opened up a whole new world for me. And I think, you know, the mission of um, getting people interested in gardens who might never go to a garden. And, you know, the amazing thing about the Smithsonian is some of the gardens are just on public sidewalks and people walk past them on their way to work who, who may never experience or, or be interested in a garden. So the opportunity to expose people uh, to plants and, and really cultivate that interest is, is something that I, I really, um, uh, really cherished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of a misunderstanding a little bit with the public about uh, the Smithsonian Gardens and where they fit in on the National Mall because they blend in so seamlessly with the surrounding architecture and with the museums that they're adjacent to that people don't think of them as separate gardens. So you have to actually look at the map to realize, no, there are several gardens all around the National Mall. Right. And very unique and diverse uh, gardens as well. Mm-hmm. And so very different from where you are now at Dumbarton Oaks, where there is a definite gate and a definite entrance into that garden (laughs) and you are stepping off of a a semi-busy street in Georgetown in Washington DC through a very ornate gate that has the name scrolled on it and I think it's it's um, wrought iron I believe yes cast iron yeah Mm -hmm. cast iron and then you're going uh, being admitted through a little entry gate uh, with a Um, security guard there with your name on a list or a ticket system. Yes. Yeah. Very different atmosphere. Um, And, uh, you know, Beatrix Farron, who designed the gardens um, with Mildred Bliss, um, even writes about that entrance. Um, And of course, at that time, the gardens were private garden, but she writes about the mixed uh, border on the R Street uh, edge of the property as, um, and she says something to the effect of it should in no way feel like like we are screening people out from the place, but that's exactly what, what it should do. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, it's definitely a different mission, a very different feel from, from a place like the Smithsonian. It took me a big adjustment um, coming uh, here from the Smithsonian where, uh, you know, at the Smithsonian, the mission is to welcome as many visitors as possible to the museums and gardens. And uh, that's just not possible here with the challenges that we have with access and pathways and topography and, um, just the historic nature of this garden and our preservation mission doesn't always fit well with lots of visitors. So it was definitely an adjustment for me um, to come to terms with the fact that we are open to the public, but our primary mission is not necessarily as a public garden. Mm. And during COVID, uh, you were closed the grounds for most of that period, and now they're reopened, but it's on a timed um, entry system, and you have to register in advance. You can't do so at the gate. That is correct. Yes, we um, we closed down completely. In fact, the whole campus closed down for COVID. Um, uh, the only groups that were on site were the gardeners and uh, facility uh, group and, and security, really. Um, so it's been a very quiet, uh, year and a half for us in the gardens, although we did have to, um, we did have to space out and, and work on our scheduling to de-densify the campus. So the end result of all that, um, and the loss of, of interns and, and summer temporary gardeners, uh, really resulted in about a 40% labor reduction, uh, in the gardens during COVID. So it's been a lot of catch up for us, um, the gardens were closed just because the, the maintenance became so difficult, um, but also for safety reasons and, and um, a real um, hesitancy from Harvard to want to uh, 
potentially open us up to as a as a you know a place for COVID spread. So um, now we're reopened to the public. We actually have um, welcomed our residential fellows back to the property. For for those people who don't know, Dumbarton Oaks, in addition to um, having the historic garden. Uh, we function as a Harvard Research Center in, in the humanities, um, specifically in the areas of Byzantine, pre-Columbian, and garden and landscape studies. And so this fall, we've been fortunate to welcome close to 50 residential fellows uh, to the property to, um, to once again engage with the collections and, and work on research. Um, and with that, uh, and the public garden opening this spring, and the museum, which just opened a couple weeks ago um, and is featuring a Margaret Mee exhibit, um, so we're really uh, excited to kind of try and get back to normal. Hmm. And glad you brought up the fellowships because you said residential fellowships. That means they stay on property there. Yes, yes. Uh, some of them are virtual, but most most of them are here on property now. We have uh, we have a residential dormitory on Wisconsin Avenue, uh, as well as some other um, uh, housing. Oh, I was thinking they got to stay in the big house. <laughs> no, the big <laughs> house the is, uh, is, is largely museum uh, mm-hmm. space, collection storage, office space, um, and then uh, some performance space for, for musical events. But they do have that one great perk, Jonathan, and that's that beautiful swimming pool out back, right? Yes, they do get to enjoy the swimming pool. And that's... I don't think open to the public, but after hours for staff and for the fellows. Yes. Yes. Yeah, one of the, one of the perks of being a, a staff or fellow here is you get to use the swimming pool. Mm-hmm. It does look very tempting in the summertime, I must say. It's a lovely pool. It's amazing to be in a swimming pool in a historic garden um, and just be surrounded by the, by the beauty. It is a pretty special experience. Well, before we jump into the pool, let's maybe start with how a visitor after they come through those gates and gets checked in, approaches the house and then enters the main part of the gardens. So you kind of come up the south lawn, I believe it is, and you've got the facade of the house facing you, and you're kind of led up to a side area, the orangery. Yes, uh, and and this is um, the highest par- portion of the property. Um, one of the striking things about the gardens is that there's about a 100-foot drop um, from that uh, high point down north towards Rock Creek, and then a 50-foot drop to the east uh, down towards Mar- Montrose Park. Um, so when you come up that driveway and you're standing at the uh, orangery, you're on the highest point of the property. Uh, the orangery itself is amazing because it was uh, it's the second oldest orangery in the U.S. It was modeled after the, the oldest orangery, which is at the Y House in Maryland. And uh, it has inside of it a, a creeping fig, a ficus pamela, uh, that was planted in the 1860s and now covers almost the entire interior of the room. That's really a striking display. Yeah, that plant, it's almost like, you know, it's living and breathing. And this almost like it is the room itself. Like if the walls were to fall down, I feel like that plant would still be there surrounding you. It's so incredible to be inside that. Yes, and it is, and it also presents some interesting tensions between historic preservation of architecture and uh, plants, and you know, having living collections in a historic room, uh, you know, and, and the light and humidity and moisture requirements and all those those things. So it's a, it's an interesting case study. Hmm. And for the summertime, I think the citrus is pulled out of the orangery and put on the back patio. Do you move it back in and close that all up for the winter? 
Yes, we we uh, we display a number of tropical plants, uh, including some citrus trees, but also other things like gardenia and um, and cycads and so forth. Uh, and those all come back into the orangery for the winter. So it, it really does function as a as a as a functional orangery for overwintering tropical plants. And for those listeners, Jonathan had mentioned the Y House in Maryland, and that's W Y E. Um, so if you wanted to look up the history of that a little bit and check out their orangery, you can do so as well. So once you pass through the orangery, then you're in the gardens. And the first thing that you're encountering is kind of a, a formal patio area. And then to your right is a beautiful tree. Can you describe that tree, Jonathan? Yes, it's a stunning uh, American beech. Um, and and what is so stunning about it is that uh, I, I don't know if it was intentionally topped or it lost its central leader at a very young age, but that has resulted in all the lateral branches really um, uh, taking dominance. And so it, it is a very unique form for an American beech tree. Uh, it's, it's, it's got, I think, a 60-foot uh, spread on the canopy, um, and it just fills the entire space of that terrace. It's the first of, of a series of terraces that uh, Beatrix Farron designed and, and cut into the landscape in a, in a very sensitive way to try and work around existing grades and trees while also providing uh, a comfortable way of accessing the, the steep topography. Yeah, that tree is so incredible to spread on it. It reminds me of those really ancient ginkgo trees or those ancient oaks where they're more almost horizontal than they are vertical. Yeah. What's amazing to me about that tree is, and I ask every visitor when, when I'm giving tours and we walk through that area, how old they think that tree is. Most people think it predates Farron's work at the house because of its size and, and scale. But that tree was actually planted in the 1960s as a replacement to the original beech, um, which was an, a European purple beech. Um, so it, it's not even that old, which is, which is really stunning. Hmm. So within a person's lifetime, we can definitely achieve that look too. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like a fun one. So we should probably rewind a little bit for listeners and talk about the Blisses and Beatrice Ferrand and how that garden came to be. So um, I think it was Robert and Mildred Bliss who brought bought the property. And before that, it was more of like an English country style estate. Yes, the, the house um, was built in 1801. Uh, the original property um, consisted of most of Georgetown, was deeded to uh, a Scotsman named Ninian Beale. And, and he uh, divided the land up, gave, divided it amongst his, his, um, his sons, and then it further got divided. Eventually, the Blisses were, I, th- I think, the fifth or sixth owner. Uh, John Calhoun lived in the house while he was vice president of, of the United States. Um, and then a gentleman named Edward Linthicum lived in the house in the 18 mid 1800s. Uh, we think it was he that planted the ficus pamela as well as some uh, really iconic trees on the property. He hired an English gardener. And um, so some trees that predate the Blisses and Farrens, we think are from the Linthicum era. era. So the, uh, the Blisses purchased the property in, in 1920, and, and their intention was to have a, a country house in the city. Um, Robert Bliss was a diplomat uh, for, the, for the State Department. And so they spent actually most of the 20 years that they owned the house um, abroad. Uh, he was stationed in um, Europe during World War I in, in France. And uh, they, uh, he ended his career as the uh, American uh, U.S. diplomat to Argentina. And that explains some of the collecting of, of pre-Columbian and uh, Byzantine art that they did. Um, but 
what's what's really interesting is when you look at the way that the gardens were designed, because the Blisses weren't here while the gardens were being developed, uh, they hired Beatrix Farron early on in, in, in 1921. Uh, she came to look at the property for the first time. And um, at that time, she was already doing work at Princeton and Yale and, and really had um, had had a, a solid career under her belt. So, you know, over the over the next 20 years, she um, iteratively designed this landscape in close uh, collaboration with Mildred Bliss. And the two of them became really close friends. Um, we are so fortunate that we have a lot of the correspondence shared between them. Because the Blisses were abroad, um, Farron would trade letters back and forth with Mildred Bliss discussing ideas for the gardens. Um, she would send sketches, uh, often multiple uh, iterations of, of an idea or an, an ornament. And then once Miss Bliss approved a concept, Farron would then often um, create a full-scale mock-up. Uh, so this is particularly um, important with the ornament and furniture, uh, most of which throughout the garden she designed. And so mock-ups and, and um, photographs would be sent back and forth with rulers for, for uh, showing the scale. And once a, a, a final element was selected, then Farron would have it completed. Um, so that rich level of documentation really gives us a lot of insight into the the concepts and, and kind of uh, aesthetics that that were being discussed when the gardens were being developed. Um, and I think the real genius of this place is is Farron's vision. She she really seamlessly blends American and French, Italian and English styles um, in a way that that is is wholly unique, but uh, but really um, reminisces from those various styles. But it's done in such a seamless way, you never feel like you're in the English garden or the French garden or the Italian garden. It just all blends together. Uh, and then I think also what is uh, really speaks to the genius of her design at Dumbarton Oaks is her use of symmetry and asymmetry and playing off of tricks in the topography to give you these amazing conceal and reveal moments where you will come around a blind corner and then be struck with a main axis through the garden or, or a point of interest that is um, is fairly tricky, I think, and, and very intentional. And then the, the seamless way that she uh, allows the formality to fall away from the gardens as you leave the house, um, something that she picked up from from William, William Robinson in uh, England, uh, who she visited um, in, in her, her youth as she was learning and studying um, European gardens, it's it's really masterfully done. Um, when you're up on that uh, terrace that we were just talking about with the beech tree, um, you're surrounded by a lot of brick lattice walls and limestone coping and, and kind of very formal plantings. And then as you make your way down the terrace gardens, you, you end up in a wilderness eventually. Uh, and it's just a very fluid movement through that process. Mm -hmm. So it's going from the really formal by the house to the really informal by the time you're at the bottom of the hill and almost into Rock Creek Park. Yes. And originally she designed um, all of that, uh, what is now um, Dumbarton Oaks Park in Rock Creek Park as a naturalistic wild garden. Um, and, and she went to great lengths to expand the, the creek in several areas, adding waterfalls and dams to create reflecting pools, which were planted with native uh, and, and non-native bulbs and, um, and understory plantings. Uh, so, so it was really, um, you know, it, it was a, a very, a, a much larger garden than it is today. And it, the naturalistic part and the formal part were uh, in better conversation with each other, I think. When the Blisses uh, donated the property to Harvard in 1940, they decided to give 27 acres to the National Park Service, which is now Dumbarton Oaks Park. And so the property was divided and, and that um, 
that sent the two portions of the of the gardens on different trajectories in terms of their maintenance and 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 mission you put that very politely jonathan <laughs> because the martin oaks park um was kind of let to go almost fallow and a lot of it is being redone by volunteers now and so there's still touches that you can definitely see of the fair and landscape but a lot of it has gone away but i'm super happy to see the DeBarton Oaks Park Conservancy get involved and that the local neighbors are involved and people are helping with cleanups and, and restoring that section of yes. that landscape. No, they're really doing great work. And, and you know, in, in their defense, not only um, is it, uh, you know, a resourcing issue, I think, with the National Park Service um, in terms mm-hmm. of what they can maintain, but uh, things have changed so much in Georgetown over the years. And that that park is down at the bottom of the watershed. So, you know, all the development on Wisconsin Avenue, there's just uh, been a tremendous increase, I think, in stormwater issues and invasive plant issues that have um, really, I think, made their job a lot harder than it than it ever was. And that does bring up stormwater and some of the issues on the property because it is such a steep property. I know that a, a few years ago, you at uh, had redone some of that. Yes. Um, yes, I came on board uh, at Dunbar and Oaks here just at the tail end of that project. Um, we did a, a large uh, stormwater management project in 2017 and 2018, which um, had three goals. One, one was to bring in new water supply line into the garden because the 100-year-old pipes were failing uh, left and right. So um, about a mile of new water supply was run through the garden in a very um, circuitous and strategic uh, path to avoid as many trees as possible. And some, some really um, exceptional uh, interventions were made. Um, there was directional boring underneath of trees and, and um, you know, things like that, air spade trenches and, and things to try and prevent damage to, um, to mature trees. The second goal of that project was to um, uh, minimize the stormwater that is um, going down the hill into the park. So some new Stormwater infrastructure was put in place, um, some gutters, some additional storm drain inlets. Um, and then we, since that, have, have uh, increased some of the plantings and, uh, and, and uh, done some grading work to further reduce that, that um, potential for runoff down the hill. Um, and the last thing the project did was to uh, retrofit some of the fountains from, uh, you know, what, what was uh, the common practice 100 years ago to build a fountain with a fresh water feed and an overflow that would uh, take the excess water out into the storm system. Um, we've been retrofitting those into recirculating systems uh, to save water and, um, you know, reduce inputs. Ah, I didn't realize that they were originally just spring-fed water features there. Yes. Well, it was all municipal water, but there was, uh, yeah, was no recirculating system. So it's just mm. like leaving 13 faucets on. So we have 13 fountains throughout the garden. Oh, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're, we're down to, I think, uh, two left that are not recirculating. And mm-hmm. so, and those are really uh, very small fountains with very little flow. But all the major ones, the big fountain at the Ellipse and the Lover's Lane Pool, the Fountain Terrace fountains have all been converted to recirculating systems. Great. So let's focus on some of those really iconic points in the garden that you go through. And maybe we'll start off with maybe the first one that you see in a growing season or might encounter, which is the Forsythia hillside. Yes, the Forsythia dell. Um, it, it's, uh, 
it's an amazing piece of, of garden um, with it, a full acre of forsythia uh, tumbling down what is some of the steepest topography on the property um, just before uh, you enter the, the park. Um, and originally, actually, that forsythia hill extended down into what is now Dumbarton Oaks Park. There are still some remnants of the forsythia left, but it's a really striking uh, mass. Uh, and, and the effect, the architectural effect, which is what Farron was really going for, is really stunning to see these plants um, spilling down like a green uh, or yellow waterfall, depending on the time of year. Um, it's also interesting that we we uh, we have a variety of forsythia. Uh, the, the primary variety in the forsythia dell is um, is the uh, spectabilis cultivar, um, but we also have on a, an adjacent hillside planted uh, a forsythia variety that is um, named Beatrix Farrand and was an Arnold Arboretum introduction, which is I think really great because that is where she started. Uh, her her um, her studies in horticulture under uh, Charles Sargent while the arboretum was being laid out. Ah, that's really cool. I didn't know about that cultivar of the forsythia. I'll have to collect that one myself. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it it has a more it's a more weeping habit uh, mm-hmm. is the main difference. Yeah, and if you've ever grown forsythia on a hillside or a slope, it does have that tendency to tip, like to lean over touch the ground and start a new plant where where it touches the ground and then continue to crawl almost or go down that hillside so it's almost self-propagating in that way yes it is and and that came in really handy uh at the tail end of that stormwater project because um one of the areas they ran a a major storm line and several new drain inlets was down through wisteria or forsythia dell so we had a big swath of of bare ground to deal with and we were very lucky to be to have such um, su- such a planting of forsythia that we could take cuttings and and just um, start uh, start new plants uh, without having to to bring in nursery grown plants because there is a lot of confusion in the nursery industry, especially with uh, forsythia. And so the last thing we would want to do is bring in a different variety and then have have something that uh, you know that changed the, the ultimate design. Mm-hmm. And around the same time as the forsythias blooming are some of the first spring bulbs and some of the ephemeral natives that you might have on property. Can you talk about those? Yes. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, we are trying all the time to add to that, actually. Um, the, the best place to see that is on Lover's Lane in Melisande's LA over on the eastern portion of the property, where you'll see um, uh, crocus, uh, eranthus, galanthus, and and all sorts of early spring bulbs. And a- another real early harbinger of spring at Dumbarton Oaks is uh, is the tree. Uh, some of the early flowering trees, the Prunus mume, and some of the uh, other cherries on Cherry Hill, the uh, Prunus blariana along Plum Walk are some of the first things to bloom in the spring, along with those early ephemerals. And you have a a collection of crab apples there as well that follow those. We do. There's a there's a part of the garden called Crab Apple Hill uh, that is uh, basically a mass planting of crab apple trees. Um, and it's really interesting. This garden, um, you know, one thing I didn't mention yet is that it's not primarily a flower garden, um, and it it kind of uh, was a response and a pulling back from the the real exuberant Victorian flower gardens. And so. Um, a lot of the flowers that we see in the spring come from the trees and shrubs. And there, there certainly are bulbs. There certainly are a, 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 a few garden rooms that have season-long annuals, such as Fountain Terrace or the Herbaceous Border. But a lot of the spring color is um, coming from the woody plants. And it's really interesting to see how Farrand used those plants to kind of choreograph the movement through the garden. 
Um, so there are moments where you will be walking down a path and you'll get a little peak. Uh, for example, walking down Plum Walk, you'll get a peak of uh, cherry bloom in the distance in the early spring, and that entices you to walk down the Catoni Aster Steps and, and into Cherry Hill. But a, a month later, when the cherries are out of bloom, you get a peak of bloom from a dogwood um, at a branch in the path, and that causes you to want to follow that branch and go up to um, the ellipse, and then you'll, you're struck by the um, the crab apples on Crab Apple Hill. So it's really the the flowering trees that help direct the uh, movement through the garden. It's really a fascinating thing to see. Mm. And those are so beautiful in the springtime in Washington, D.C. It's not all about the cherry trees down at the Tidal Basin. That's right. Brought up the ellipse. Let's talk about the trees on that. So those aren't flowering trees that, that circled that ellipse. Correct. Yes. The, uh, what, what is planted there now is a, is a um, aerial hedge of American hornbeam, Carpinus caroliniana. That's an interesting part of the gardens because it changed a lot and it, it, it shows you kind of the iterative process of both Farron's design and then also some of the changes that were necessitated by the transition from a private garden to an institutional garden. Um, the ellipse originally uh, in Farron's design was part of Boxwood Walk, which is a, a sloping walk and one of the major axes through the gardens that was bordered with English boxwood on either side. And, and you would come down to the ellipse and be it was kind of like a keyhole garden where you would come into this terminus that was fully enclosed in mature American boxwood. And it was a place of solitude and reflection uh, with a simple um, single jet fountain in, in the center of, of a pond. But Farron noted even towards the end of her time working on the property that the boxwood were failing and something would need to be done. Uh, and she writes in her plant book that uh, careful study would be needed before a decision was made. But she um, she never got to do the careful study. She, at that point, had begun pulling away and, and, um, and ended up retiring um, from her work at Dumbarton Oaks, um, leaving her protege, Ruth Havey, to take over. Uh, so the, the ellipse has gone through some some uh, quite a few changes. Uh, Ruth Havey did some designs that were never realized. And then Robert Pattinson and Ralph Griswold ended up um, doing some design work that resulted in the um, the pleached hornbeam hedge that you see there now. That was actually finally realized by Alden Hopkins um, in the late 1960s. So, you know, a lot of these spaces have changed a lot over the years, but then we always try and bring it back to Farron's design intent. Uh, and so recently we had to replace those trees in the ellipse because they had declined. There were a number of them missing, and we decided to replace them with uh, with another set of, of American hornbeams. So we, we had them contract uh, grown um, because of the special form that we needed to achieve the aerial hedge. But we're making some changes. For example, the Alden Hopkins design had a pea gravel mulch under the trees that we didn't feel contributed to their health. It encouraged a lot of foot traffic under the trees, and so we wanted to change that. And so we've brought in a ground cover instead, um, which we feel still gives you kind of the reflectivity of a pea gravel, but uh, is going to be better for the trees uh, and their, their, you know, their, their future survival. Hmm. I hadn't realized that the trees were so recent. And then there's carved wooden benches in that area, and they seem fairly new as well. Yes. Well, those benches are reproductions, and mm -hmm. uh, they're part of a, a larger project that we're working on to restore and, and, and reproduce some of the Farron designed furniture throughout the gardens. Uh, yeah, the trees we replanted in 2019. Um, we actually did a big project down there where we excavated the soil after, after some studies and, and analysis to determine, you know, what was contributing to the, to the trees decline. 
we did a big project where we mixed a custom soil and and replanted all those trees into that soil. It was about 300 yards of, of soil that we mixed on site down at the ellipse. We built a deck uh, out of wood and then um, had had some small equipment down there to do the mixing. And so those benches that you saw recently are the are the last element to be restored in that ellipse. And now um, we've kind of moved on to the next area. But the, the benches... Um, are, are fantastic. They, they, uh, Farron designed uh, about 45 different pieces of furniture throughout the gardens. And many of them are just one of a kind, unique pieces that were designed specifically for that, uh, particular place in the gardens. Um, and what's amazing to me is, is some of these original pieces are still in the gardens and albeit in not in great shape. Um, but we're just, uh, it's, it's just amazing to think that you still have a, a bench a hundred years later, um, that, that Farron designed. So, uh, so we've started a project a couple years ago where we've created 3D computer models of all the furniture um, so that we can capture the, the the design intent, the joinery, the wood grain direction, and all those minute details that really make them masterpieces. And now we're in a process of reproducing them so that in the next two years, um, I think most of the furniture in the garden will be reproduced. And then we are going to um, save the originals and... Um, some of them will be um, displayed uh, interior and, and, and added to the collection. Hmm. Yeah, 100 years is, is a good track record for a lot of that furniture. Yeah. And then with that, we're starting um, kind of hand in hand with the furniture. We've started, uh, you know, and this really fits with the, the, the celebration of the centennial of the garden this year. Um, we're looking back at the last 100 years and we're looking ahead at the, at the next 100 years. And so we've started a project to really holistically assess and, and um, preserve all of the other Farrand designed ornament throughout the gardens. Um, because in addition to benches and, and chairs and tables, she also designed uh, urns and pepper pots and um, columns and all kinds of architectural element. Uh, and and it's a lot of it is, is mixed materials. There's wood elements, there's stone, there's, uh, there's metal, um, and, and it's in various stages of, of needing intervention. So We've gone through and done an assessment of all of it. Um, we have a 10-year plan or so to address the most critical elements. Um, and we just finished our first project this year, which was really a, a great project. It was down in the Lover's Lane pool. Uh, there are a series of 15 columns that were designed by Farrand and, and are interconnected with uh, cast iron chains. Um, we were able to restore those. They were uh, Some of them were leaning. They had cracks throughout them. Uh, they were they were in various stages of of, of being at risk um, for toppling over eventually, um, and so we were able to 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 stabilize them and consolidate the stone and and clean them up and and uh, a couple urns on the top of a couple columns were missing, so we were able to recast from a couple of the originals that were in the best shape and and reproduce um, uh, urns for the missing columns. So it's a really uh, it was a really successful project in terms of bringing bring that space back to it to a, a higher aesthetic level and taking care of some safety concerns as well. Mm. Yeah, I had visited recently and, and noticed the upgrades around the Lover's Lane pool. And I kind of have to admit, I kind of like the shabby chicness, <laughs> the kind of gray gardens look that it had before. Yeah. But it, but it is obviously safer and nicer to have those re- restored and not being able to fall on somebody. Yes. And that aging will come back with time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, you know, it's it's interesting. Another part of that project was we had our longtime uh, masonry contractor, John Pond, rebuild part of the brick of the amphitheater seating in that area um, because it was it was the brick was um, decomposing. 
And so you can see where the new bricks are, um, where he fixed it. And he really, he, he's been working on this property for uh, close to 30 years. Um, and he really is emotionally and personally invested in in the gardens. And it really bothered him to see the new bricks in his own work. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, what I told him is what I tell, tell, uh, visitors as well as we're, we're planning for the next hundred years. So, mm-hmm. um, so the bricks will grow moss once again, and, and the columns will, will age and, and look, uh, look, look old before long. Mm. And earlier you had mentioned the plant book that, Beatrice Farron had written, and you're very lucky at Dumbarton Oaks to have the the correspondence between Bliss and Farron, but also that book that she left, which has very detailed instructions about each of the garden rooms and the landscape there. Yes, I, we are so fortunate. That correspondence that you mentioned, along with the plant book, um, really together serve as our preservation guide for the gardens. And, uh, we're, it's a really exciting time for us because we're actually, the, the plant book is out of, um, out of date. It's, it's no longer, um, available. It's out of, uh, print. So, um, we're actually going to re- be republishing it as part of our centennial celebration of the garden. Um, we've just finished working on it and it's out, uh, at the printers and it'll be available in the spring of 2022. So we're keeping, um, all of Farron's original words about the garden and we're just adding, uh, some introductory essays and also some updates um, throughout the book uh, to give readers a, a contemporary view of what has changed and, and, and in some cases explaining why we make some of the changes that we do make. But that book is just incredible because she is so articulate in, in, in laying out both why she does what she does and then um, how she envisions the future maintenance to be. Yeah, I can't wait to read that update. That's going to be exciting. Yeah, we're very excited. It's one of two books that we're um, producing as part of the Centennial Celebrations. Um, the other book is uh, my colleague is putting out, Thaisa Way, who is our director of Garden and Landscape Program. And she's producing a book um, with essays by various landscape architects and garden historians and beautiful photography, um, four seasons of photography through Dumbarton Oaks. So, um, so we're going to have both kind of the the beautiful, thoughtful, inspiring um, essay book and the the plant book, which I really consider to be um, a reference book and, and really best read in the gardens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think bringing your copy with you and being able to sit in the garden will be an incredible experience. Yes. And so a couple mm-hmm. more garden highlights that we should definitely talk about mm-hmm. are Dean's Walk and then, of course, the Pebble Garden. And let's start with Dean's Walk. And I have to admit some real frustration, Jonathan. When I go on Pinterest and I see pictures looking up the, the divided staircase and it'll be labeled something like garden stairs with no attribution at all that this was a fair and design or that it was Dumbarton Oaks. So I always feel like I have to go on in on Instagram and Pinterest and add a note every time I see it and say, this is at Dumbarton Oaks people. It's not just some generic garden. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, there is, um, I sometimes get frustrated there. There's, uh, I mean, we're very fortunate that there's a, there's a ton of interest um, out there for Dumbarton Oaks. There are so many books that have been written about Dumbarton Oaks. And, and so inevitably there is a lot of misinformation or lack of information about Dumbarton Oaks. And so um, thank you for that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not on social media these days. Otherwise I would be compelled to correct uh, those things as well. <laughs> yeah. It's such a beautiful 
um, little shady area, little exclusion. And you talked about the hide and seek, you know, type of aspect of the garden where you come in into a new space that is totally revealed and open to you. And this is one of those spaces where you turn to look up the stairs and it's, you know, just a little gem, um, just as, you know, a definitely Instagrammable moment where you yeah. can sit on the stairs and, you know, one partner can be on each side or you could be both at the base of it. It's just wonderful. Yes. And actually uh, we were really fortunate to have, um, to have Annie Leibovitz in the garden this summer, photographing a, a fashion shoot for Vogue, um, which was accompanied with a, a fantastic article on Farrand. Um, and it just came out, it was in the September issue of Vogue. And, uh, Unfortunately, one of my favorite shots that didn't make the the, the magazine was on those stairs, and uh, I, I was really surprised that they didn't make the final cut because it was a really compelling image. Hmm. Maybe Annie will be sharing that in a future show or something. <laughs> there are some fantastic images, uh, so I highly recommend checking it out, and and a wonderful article on on uh, Farrand and her process. And great. And so the Pebble Garden, which you see from the terrace above looking down and you see the whole design laid out in front of you um, or you can walk down into it and then see it at a more intimate level yes and and that's again another interesting part of the garden because um it's not a fair in design uh the pebble garden itself is a ruth havey design but um that's another example of the iteration and the change uh in in uh, intent over time. Um, that pebble garden originally was a tennis court. Uh, and Mr. Bliss was an avid tennis player. Um, Beatrix Farron designed the walls and wall plantings and which are still there. And actually we were so honored last, uh, in 2020 to be included in a series of, uh, forever stamps through the U S postal service. And so there's a fantastic, um, stamp with a picture of the wisteria blooming in pebble garden. And, and uh, so, so it's a really uh, iconic space. Um, it's interesting, the change over time, the tennis court in the transition to Harvard had become, I think, a laydown area for the gardeners. <laughs> and so in the, in the transition to an institutional garden, um, it, was, uh, it was redesigned. And, and Ruth Havey, it's what's, what I find very interesting about Pebble Garden is it really gives you an opportunity to see the differences in Ruth Havey's style um, versus uh, Beatrix Farron's style. And Beatrix Farrand was was much more restrained, I guess, in her design style. She was really inspired by arts and crafts um, aesthetics. And so you can see in her furniture, in her ornament, it's it's a very kind of neoclassic and arts and crafts melange um, versus Ruth Havey, who was really more enamored with uh, with Rococo style and kind of Baroque style. Uh, flourishes. And so the Pebble Garden is a perfect example of that with all the Doria um, filigreed stone and and kind of curving uh, lines and, and kind of almost over the top flamboyance um, was was uh, very kind of trademark Ruth Havey. So it's really interesting to have that in conversation with the original walls and, and wall plantings. Mm-hmm. It do, does remind me of uh, my grandparents were in Bayreuth and it reminds me of some of the Baroque and and the palace gardens that are around there um almost that feel of that with there's hardly any plant material it's all different mixes of stone materials and different layers and then you have the wisteria which only what for two or three weeks is in bloom yeah and so another highlight for me and maybe not an iconic part of the garden is the cutting gardens and the kitchen garden 
Um, so were those always part of the estate? Yes. And, and Farron writes about them in the plant book. Um, so there, there definitely was a kitchen gardens. Um, you know, it has certainly changed over, over time. And the, the, the addition of the cutting garden, uh, was something that was brought in later. Um, but there was definitely a precedent, uh, in, in Farron's time and in the Bliss's time for, um, growing fruits and vegetables for, for their use, um, it, it functioned as a victory garden during uh, World War II, and then shortly after that, it was um, disbanded in the in the transition to Harvard and the realization that um, that the resources needed to be you know consolidated in the gardening uh, department. They they let the vegetable garden go fallow. So uh, it was brought back, I believe, in two thousand eight. It was before before my time here, but. Um, uh, now we have um, the cutting garden, which which really makes a lot of sense because uh, we do fresh flower arrangements for um, our residential fellow programs for the symposia, colloquia, and and research talks. Um, and you know, Miss Bliss uh, had a um, was was very much uh, into having fresh flowers in the house, so there's a lot of precedent for that as well. And then we grow uh, vegetables on about a quarter acre section of the kitchen garden. Now um, we focus on vegetables that we can provide to our, uh, we have a staff cafeteria that, um, that provides lunch for the residential fellows and for staff. And so our goal is to provide some produce and, and fruits and vegetables and herbs from the gardens, um, that the community here can enjoy. Oh, I didn't know about the staff cafeteria. I have to, uh, get an invitation to that sometime. Yeah. I'm <laughs> waiting for it to reopen. That's one of the few things that has not reopened, uh, after COVID, but, uh, yeah, I can imagine that that would be the latter item to be there. And so any other garden highlights that you take uh, visitors to that are a personal favorite of yours, Jonathan? Um, well, one of my favorite spots in the garden is the Lover's Lane pool area, um, just because I feel like it is, it almost feels like it was, it's been uncovered or excavated rather than built. And um, it just it just feels much older than it than it is. And I, I think part of that is the fact that it was inspired by uh, a 17th century courtyard in in Rome in, in a, uh, Academia del Arcadia del Bosco, uh, which Farron visited. And uh, there's there's a courtyard there with some brick amphitheater seating and a central flagstone courtyard where poetry readings and other literary exchanges would take place. And so it's really interesting to me that Farron was inspired by that and kind of recreated it here at Dumbarton Oaks. But the theme was music because the Blisses were so, uh, were so, uh, they, they loved music and so they loved performance. And so um, this as a place of outdoor performance, as a place of, of musical performance, it's just interesting to see that creation um, here at Dumbarton Oaks. And the, the last thing I would say that I, I love pointing out to visitors, it's not an iconic or special part of the garden, but um, it's something just to think about as you go through the gardens as a whole, and especially in, in light of the centennial, um, that as we look ahead to the next hundred years, we're, we are really expanding our management criteria to, to both um, strive to preserve Farron's design intent, but also do that while being sensitive to um, ecological needs and ecosystem services and habitat and, and things like that, that the garden, you know, 16 contiguous acres in DC is, is important. So, um, so that's one of our missions is to try and look at some of the invasive plants that Farron used and see if we can't make substitutions with um, native plants or at least non-invasive plants that will provide uh, better ecosystem services and, and habitat 
So that's a big focus really throughout the gardens. Um, we've already started a couple projects and we'll be carrying that through um, probably for the next 10 years because it's a it's a slow and, um, and steady process because we don't want to we want to do it very thoughtfully. We want to maintain the, the look and feel of the gardens and the privacy and, and things like that. Um, so we're, we're not just wholesale ripping things out. And there are some invasive plants um, like the wisteria, for example, that are so iconic to the design intent that we will we will not be um, removing them. But there are other plants like privet, for example, um, which can easily be substituted with a, a fragrant white spring blooming native shrub that would fill the the intent, the design intent requirements while also um, serving the habitat better. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there was a plan for replacing some of those. So that's great to hear. Yeah, we've already started down Melisande's LA, which is um, on the eastern side of the property close to Montrose Park. And um, behind the LA was just a mess of invasive plants. And so we We've removed a portion of them. Uh, we didn't want to remove them all because it really would have opened up the edge of the property and, and really taken away the privacy and the kind of um, meditative quality of that LA. Um, so we removed enough that we could get some native plants in. Uh, we planted about 100 deciduous native shrubs, and um, this was in 2019. And uh, last year, we weren't able to continue because of COVID and just having to triage our maintenance in the gardens. But we're now coming back this year with uh, with some evergreen uh, shrubs. I'm very excited to try this Magnolia Virginiana variety called Sweet Thing, which is a, a dwarf uh, Virginia Magnolia, Sweet Bay Magnolia. Um, so I, we're going to try that uh, as well as some other things in there and, and, and get an evergreen backbone so that we can remove the rest of the invasives. And then we'll we will maintain a, a privacy buffer with with native plants. Exciting. I can't wait to see how that sweet thing develops and to check on that in maybe five to 10 years. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been fascinating. And for all of those listeners who have been to Dumbarton Oaks, I'm sure it brings back wonderful memories. And those who have never been to Dumbarton Oaks, I would say put that on your life list. Yes, we'd love to have you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Kathy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prickly Pear Plant Profile The Eastern Prickly Pear Cactus, Opuntia humifusa, or Opuntia compressa, is the only cactus native to the Mid-Atlantic, and, though it looks like a desert dweller, it is perfectly hardy here. It is closely related to the Fragile Prickly Pear from the Great Plains and Drummond's Prickly Pear, occurring in the southeastern United States. It prefers rocky or sandy soil with good drainage, planted along a sidewalk edge, slope, or retaining wall. It also grows well in containers. It needs full sun and to be kept relatively dry. Prickly pear form clumps and spread slowly. It can be propagated by seed or by breaking off a pad and sticking it in the soil cutting side down. 
The plant is hardy from USDA zones 4 to 9. It can survive freezing temperatures, though it may look a little sad when it dehydrates and wrinkles during the winter months. The plant has beautiful yellow flowers in early summer, which are then followed by red fruits. Prickly pear fruit is edible, as are the cactus paddles, also called nopalis. Wear thick gloves whenever handling any part of the plant. The brown bristles and spines are easy to see and avoid, but the fruits are also covered in small hair-like spines that can get under your skin like splinters. Prickly pear is a fun plant to grow that is a great conversation piece in the garden. It's also beneficial for pollinators and the fruit is eaten by various wildlife. What's new in the garden this week? Well, before I dive into that, I wanted to give a thank you to our latest listener supporter, Saw. Thank you so much for helping support this program. And thank you to all the past and current listener supporters that helped make Garden DC possible. Over at our community garden plot, we've reseeded a few things that never came up for us. We kind of had um, some radish seeds and arugula that just never germinated. And we don't know if it was because the seeds weren't good or it was because of the torrential rains that happened shortly after we planted them. So we've replaced them with new radish seeds, new arugula seeds, and we'll see how those do. Meanwhile, what is doing good are the lettuces, the bok choy, and the spinach. So we have lots of greens coming up for this cool season in the vegetable garden. Over at my home garden, I think the standout plant this week literally is the Tatarian aster, that big six foot uh, tall plant that might be a little bit floppy sometimes, but is incredible at the back of a garden with those beautiful purple blooms. And we're going to do a plant profile coming up on the Aster Tartaricus. So happening in the local gardening world, I wanted to bring your attention to some great news. If you hadn't heard already, uh, the American Horticultural Society is staying at River Farm. Yay! So they are not going to be purchased. They are not for sale. So they will be staying for now at River Farm right down the road from Mount Vernon outside of Alexandria, Virginia. And then locally, we have a couple virtual events that you can attend online that are normally in person, but now it opens up the possibility for anybody in the world to attend them. And the first is the Mid-Atlantic Urban Agricultural Summit that takes place October 12th through 14th. And you can find out about that at the Virginia Cooperative Extension website. And that is a nominal fee, I believe, of $25 to attend three days of programming. So check that out if you are into vegetable growing, and especially if you are in an urban or small space area. The other conference coming up that I wanted to bring your attention to is the annual Perennial Plant Conference. And this year's title is Perennial Plants for the Mid-Atlantic and How to Use Them in Landscapes. It's taking place, again, online. Friday, October 15th, and you can sign up for that at perennialplantconference.org.org. And that conference has a registration fee as well, and that's held by the Scott Arboretum on the campus of Swarthmore College normally. 
and I urge you to go out and visit some of our public gardens. In today's episode, we talked about Dumbarton Oaks, and we just congratulated American Horticultural Society for keeping its home at River Farm. But if you are in the D.C. area, there are some wonderful public gardens to visit, and you can go to dcgardens.com and see many of them profiled there. If you are Anywhere close to the Philadelphia area, you can check out America's Garden Capital website for 30 wonderful public gardens that you can visit in that area. And if you are outside both those areas, we urge you to come and visit us and our public gardens, but also to explore the public gardens in your own area. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.